Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit. Bullshit is rampant. Total fucking bullshit. Bullshit this makes no fucking sense. I mean, this is bullshit. Fuck. Bullshit is bullshit. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Welcome back to Bullshit Vilta, the Anti-Vaxxers, yeah. uh, episode 4.5. Uh, my name is Cameron Riley. How are you, Ray Harris? Doing great. How are you? Have you woken up? You're oh, awake now, right? I'm yeah. There. Yeah, I'm awake. Good, I'm awake. Good. Um, the claim that we're going to deal with in this episode is uh, claim number three on the anti-vaxxer site that I was reading. The very first vaccine was a disaster, they claim. Mm-hmm. Vaccine safety and effectiveness is a created myth strongly embedded in American psyche and reinforced by the healthcare system. The history of smallpox vaccines demonstrates that the first vaccine resulted in an increase in the disease and created additional serious health consequences, including syphilis and deaths. Physician groups met repeatedly to discuss the vaccine problem and concluded that as long as vaccines remained profitable they would be impossible to eliminate in spite of the evidence against them. Nothing has changed since this time. The polio vaccine was another one linked to serious health consequences, including cancer and AIDS. Statistics were manipulated to try and prove this vaccine's effectiveness. With each new vaccine has come new health damage and created illness. Mm. Whoa. Okay, so first of all, strongly embedded in American psyche. Uh, duh, Americans aren't the only people who <laughs> vaccinate, dummy. And what healthcare system? You don't fucking have a healthcare system over there. You have a no healthcare system. <sighs> You're the country without a working healthcare system. Yeah, it's just too hard for us. It's too complicated. Yeah, I mean, every other country in the world could do it, but Americans just can't figure it out, apparently. Yeah. So let's look at their first uh, big claim here. Did the introduction of the smallpox vaccine result in an increase in the disease, Ray? What did you find out about that? Well, I mean, again, this is them splitting hairs because the um, the smallpox has been around since the 3rd century BCE. And if they're talking about going back then and the very rough attempts that they made to build up an um any kind of immunity. Yeah, that I'm sure that didn't go over very well. And then, of course, I think in the first or second episode, we talked about in 1796, uh, Dr. Edward Jenner, I believe, with the whole milkmaids and the cowpox and things like that. So again, if they're talking about that, then yes, I'm sure there were a lot of imperfections. But I think they're purposefully being vague in their theories and their words, because by the time you get to the 20th century, obviously a lot of changes have been made, and smallpox, by and large, has been wiped out. So again, I would really like to know, I wish they would have been more specific in their claim. Hmm. Well, I'm assuming they're talking about what happened uh, in in the sort of 1700s, 1800s that right. we talked about on our first episode. I found it hard to get worldwide figures, honestly, on smallpox vaccine in yeah. that era, uh, what happened. But I found some numbers from Boston, and um, I think there's no reason why we can't take this as a good representative uh, example. Okay. So the smallpox vaccine was first used in Boston in the year 1800. Before then, hundreds or maybe even thousands of people per 100,000 died whenever there was a smallpox outbreak. Right. From the spring of 1721 until the winter of 1722, there was a smallpox epidemic in Boston started when a British ship arrived in Boston Harbor from the West Indies. Someone on the ship had the disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah. British. (laughs) Um, They were like, well, you know how you gave the Indians pox infected blankets. That was on purpose. We decided to do the same to you. Gotcha. Yeah. They did the same. Here. Have this. You don't like paying, you don't like paying taxes (laughs) here. Okay. Have this blanket. 
<laughs> yeah, have this blanket. Um, now, out of a population of 11,000 people in Boston at the time, over 6,000 cases of smallpox were reported. So over, over half the city got smallpox. Right. Um, and 850 people died from the disease. Jesus. Then they started using the inoculation method that you were just talking about, which had come in from England, um, Mm -hmm. from Turkey. Uh, Cotton Mather, who was a Puritan minister, is the first guy to have introduced it into the American colonies, apparently. Best known for his involvement in the Salem witch trials. Oh, God. (laughs) Witch trials and inoculation were his big thing. Cotton Mather. Right. Um... He first learned about inoculation from his West African slave, Onesimus. Right. Another very famous slave called Onesimus. Who was that, Ray? Um, is that with the ship Amistad? God. <laughs> I don't know. Who is it? Test, testing your biblical knowledge. Oh, I don't yeah, have any Ray. biblical knowledge. No, sorry. Yeah. Mm. Okay. I'm not ashamed of that. No, okay. Right. Uh, in the New Testament, one of St. Paul's epistles, sure. his letters, um, Philemon, is, uh, he's writing it from jail, probably in Rome, towards the end of his life. Mm-hmm. Might, in fact, be the last uh, of his epistles, his authentic epistles in the Bible. Mm-hmm. He's writing it to Philemon, who's uh, one of his followers, um, and he's saying, listen, your slave, Onesimus, which means useful, right. has been here with me. Apparently the slave ran away Mm-mm. from his master, who was a complete asshole, right. beating him, all that kind of shit. Went to Paul, who he probably right. met when Paul was um, in, in the city where he came from, um, Colossae. Um, and uh, Paul sort of is sending him back to his slave master saying, listen, he's coming back <laughs> as your slave. I'm sending, even though he's been really useful, hence his name Onesimus, and I wanted to keep him, right. I'm sending him back to you um, because, I don't know, he's a slave. But just don't just don't be just, as mean to him yeah, when I send him back to you because right. he's also now a Christian. Oh. He's a Christian. Yeah. yeah. Is he Christian uh, first and then black? Or black and then a Christian. Mm, I'm not okay. really sure, but <laughs> right. um, yeah, just checking. He sends him. He he sends him back to his slave master. Mm-hmm. That was that was Paul's approach Dick. to slavery. Right. Well, look, yeah, look. <laughs> God, God wants you to be a slave. You were born, yeah. Off you go. Yeah, God's will. Mm. Anyway, so this this uh, slave Onesimus, uh, Cotton made the slave. Uh, apparently told him that he had undergone the operation, being inoculation, uh, which had given something of the smallpox and would forever preserve him from it, adding that was often used in West Africa. Mm. He's like, well, aren't you you knowledgeable (laughs) for a slave? (laughs) So after the actual vaccine was introduced in Boston in 1800, the disease pretty much disappeared. So when they say it caused an increase, I'm not exactly sure what data they're getting from. Now, the only quotes that I've found that suggest an increase in smallpox in England after vaccinations were introduced all come from books written by the same one guy, Ah. Chun Nguyen. Chun Nguyen. Right. Now, I I don't know who he is. Right. A very, very hard name to Google and track down. But if you go through the anti-vax, like the VacTruth articles, if you go through their articles on this statement that it caused an increase, pick any sentence and Google it, you will find that every book that they are referenced in is co-written by Trung Nguyen. Ah, bullshit meter just went off, off the chart. It's very strange. Yeah. 
So I took this one quote from this anti-vax article. Smallpox attained its maximum mortality after vaccination was introduced. Mm-hmm. Now, put that in inverted commas, throw it into Google. The only place that appears verbatim is from books by Chung Nguyen. Um, another, another quote I took, vaccination was made compulsory by an act of parliament in the year 1853, again in 1867, and still more stringent in 1871. Yeah. Since 1853, we have had three epidemics of smallpox, each being more severe than the one preceding. So these are, qu- these are, these are, uh, quotes supposedly from the 19th century, um, that you'll find on any vaccines, throw them into Google again, at least five identical books mm. written by Trung Nguyen with different names and different co-authors on Google that you can find um, have this line in it. Two, two things. Two things. If you take the letters of his name and you move them around, I guarantee <laughs> you it spells Putin. That's the first one. No, no, but obviously that's that's extremely suspect. And I just wanted to add on to your Boston. Another anti-vax website said... They had introduced uh, the vaccine or their, you know, their version of it in 1800. And there was an epidemic in 1871 and in 1874, which to them was proving that the vaccinations doesn't work. And as we and of course, as we all know, Boston is a major city that receives people from all over the world all the time. So I'm sure those epidemics had to do with um, new arrivals carrying the disease. But again, that's part of their argument saying, if this stuff truly works, you wouldn't have outbreaks, um, you know, a couple of decades later. And of course, the science, as we said in the last episode, the science, even today, let alone in the 1800s, is a little bit slapdash. Right. It's it's a little bit blunt instrument, our approach to these sorts of things, because of our lack of understanding then, uh, even more so than now, of how the body works and how disease works. Yeah, We didn't even really have an, an accepted germ theory of disease until the 1900s. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these uh, approaches, they were, they were doing the best that they could. Um, so getting back to this Trung Nguyen mm-hmm. guy, um, some of these quotes that he's got in his books, I found reference to in a 1967 edition of the Bulletin of the History of Medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's talking about some of these different co-authors that he's got on his books. This is the quote from this bulletin. In the 1850s, opposition to vaccination arose largely from the irregular physicians, the advocates of unorthodox medical theories. For example, Dr. Joel Shu, adherent of the Vincent Prisnitz water cure. Right. Dr. Russell T. Troll, founder of the New York Hygelo Therapeutic College. And Dr. C.C. Schifferdecker. The owner and manager of a Philadelphia hydropathic infirmary were the leading anti-vaccinationists of the 1850s. Mm. Gotcha. So these guys were all selling versions of a water cure. <laughs> so they were fringe crackpots yeah, uh, of the 18 late uh, late 19th century, right? Yeah. Yeah, and they're the guys that. Trung Nguyen is quoting in all of his books with different titles. So it looks like there's a lot of them out there, but it's pretty much the same book with different titles as far as I can tell. Mm-hmm. And the anti-vaxxers are just lifting this stuff whole as bolus and saying, look, there you go, there's your proof. <laughs> Crackpot doctors from the late 1800s. Um I'm sorry, but no, but this is a point that we made on the first couple of shows. Clearly, this is bullshit. But if you're an anti-vaxxer and you are bound and determined to find anything, any claims to back you up, I think you're for lack of better word, standards are going to be lowered and you're going to grab these quotes and you're going to take these statistics and you're going to use these charts and you're just going to flood the internet with them. And again, 
they're not being selective. They, they maybe they feel that they're being laughed at or they're being perse- persecuted or whatever. But again, they're just willing to take anything they can find without doing any due diligence. Or maybe they even know and don't care that it's bullshit, but they're putting it in their articles or they're, or they're spouting it to people. And again, you just have to wonder about the almost victim mentality that they have that they're willing to go to almost any lengths to prove that they're right and that they're trying to save your life or, or to, to to make sure the government's not getting over on you as it has so many times before. Yeah. Yeah, with all of these sorts of claims and quotes, you have to go, well, what's the primary... Where'd you get that from? What's the primary source of the quote? Yeah. Trace it back as far as you can, down to the primary source if possible, and then go, okay, well, who said it? Who is the primary source? And and what's their credibility right. like? I mean, okay, just because you're a fringe doctor in the 1850s doesn't necessarily mean you're wrong. Yeah, it doesn't mean you're I right mean, either. The germ theory was fringe mm-hmm. uh, at some point. You're right. But then you look at, okay, what else was this guy talking about at the time and how did that pan out? How did uh, the water cure end right. up in terms of medical credibility or uh, hygiello therapeutics, <laughs> whatever the fuck that was? Yeah. Do we still use um, it today? Hydropathic infirmary. Right. Do, yeah. Stones? Maybe. It's, know, crystals? It's called going, going for a swim. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. <laughs> The point is, it's not still go, around like, today. Let's see. Um, the school emphasized hydropathy, sure. also known as the water cure, dietary therapy, sanitation, hygiene, exercise, and abandoning most of the materia medica used by allopathic physicians. Sure. They also emphasized veganism. Mm-hmm. And uh, there you go. What's, uh, what's the water cure? Hydrotherapy. Is that an enema? Part of alternative medicine, particularly naturopathy, naturopathy, naturopathy um, involves the use of water for pain relief and treatment. The term encompasses a broad range of approaches and therapeutic methods that take advantage of the physical properties of water, such as temperature and pressure, for therapeutic reasons Sure. to stimulate blood circulation and treat the symptoms of certain diseases. So... You basically have a spa bath by the looks right. of it. Um, that's a, it. A really Sitting good in a jacuzzi. Yeah. Hoping it goes back away. to hot Roman baths. Right. <laughs> yeah. right. It's what they did to Augustus when uh, he was suffering from all of his maladies. And, and Alexander, well, you, what you need is a good hot bath. Sorry, a cold bath. Hot bath, cold bath, just one of those baths. Water. Just have a bath. Just make sure there's water. You'll, you'll feel much better afterwards. Right. Um, yeah, uh, one of these guys, Dr. C.C. Scheiferdecker, or is it Schleffer? I can't, I can never tell. My eyesight's too bad. I can't tell if that's an I or an E. Um, doesn't matter. Either way. It doesn't. I'm going to go with Schleffer-decker because it sounds funny. (laughs) He said that vaccination was the greatest crime that had been committed in the last century. Called it nonsense before reason. Now... Using the scientific method, uh, Schlefferdecker uh, called upon uh, people to use the uh, Bible Here we go. Uh, to prove the inadequacy of vaccination, the world's most res- highly respected authority. Right. He said, look, obviously the Bible doesn't say anything about vaccination, so it can't be true. Mm. And I'm not even making that up. He actually did say Jeez. that. It's not in the Bible, so it can't be true. Um, another guy that this Trong Nguyen uses in one of his books is William Teb. Now, I was able to find out some stuff about this William Teb, and he actually sounds like a cool guy. British radical liberal in the late 1800s, right. vegetarian, abolitionist, pacifist, wow. anti-imperialist. Uh, so uh, we probably would have got yeah, along well on most things, me and William Teb. But he was a major anti-vaxxer. Now, he opposed... Vaccination on the grounds of personal liberty, Ooh. not on the health aspects of it. Right. Now, this is where I want to talk about personal liberty. I know we touched on it briefly mm-hmm. in the last episode. Now, 
when you live in a society, and look, I think when it comes to all of the anti-vaxxers' claims, personal liberty is probably the one that resonates with me the most. Okay. And uh, I'm going to give this one, um, you know, some, I, I guess, serious attention. Now, when you live in a society, you agree to certain things. Right. There is no such thing as complete liberty in a society. You live in a society because you want to take advantage of the society. You want to take advantage of the benefits that you get from living mm-hmm. close to a large group of people. Otherwise, you'd be living like a hermit out in the middle of nowhere where no one's going to give a flying fuck, quite frankly, if you vaccinate your kids or not. Right. Go live in the middle of nowhere. We don't give a shit. Go do it. Fuck off. Right? right. But you don't. You choose to live in a society because there are certain things that you want access to, like roads and running water mm-hmm. and electricity right. and a police force to protect you uh, and a job where you can earn money and uh, McDonald's yeah. and churches and all that kind of stuff. Massage parlor. Okay, so when you... Sorry, what did you say? Massage parlor. Yeah, massage parlors. Thank mm-hmm. you, right? Good one. Now, if you choose to live in a society, there are certain things that you can't do. Right. You can't murder people. You can't rape people. Or their cows. Even if... Even if you're a Catholic priest, <laughs> you still can't rape children. You shouldn't. We don't. They ca- do. We don't care what your religious beliefs are. Right. Regarding that, you can't do it. You can't drive over the speed limit. Mm. You can't drive while intoxicated. You can't steal things. Regardless of what your religion says about any of that, doesn't matter. Right. You can't do it. Right. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care what your religion says. I don't care whether or not you agree with them. Right. I don't care about your... You don't get personal liberty uh, exemptions. And people know for that. For murder, for rape. Right. For driving while drunk. Right. Exactly. For thing. We agree to that. So you, you sign up to certain limitations mm-hmm. on personal liberty when you elect to live in a society. Right. The nature of living in a society, is that the majority get to determine the laws, Mm -hmm. at least in theory, okay? Corporate influence and all that kind of stuff and psychopaths and the oligarchy aside, in theory, the majority get to determine the laws. Mm. Whilst, hopefully, and this is the big caveat, you have to protect the basic human rights of the minority. Right. It's a balance. Yeah. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. You you know I'm I'm a big belief in, a believer in in personal liberty as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I fall you know pretty hard on the libertarian spectrum towards towards personal liberty. But where you draw the line is where the liberty that you want is going to infringe upon the basic human rights of other people. Right. You can't do that. If you're in a minority, you should have the right, I think, to choose how you live unless in doing so you're infringing upon the rights of others. Mm -hmm. So if you're in a minority and you believe that your God thinks it's okay for you to rape little children, that's not okay. We don't protect that right. And the same is true of vaccinations. If you don't get your children vaccinated... You're putting their health at risk, you're putting their life at risk, and you're putting the health and lives of other people, particularly other people's children, Mm -hmm. at risks, and you don't have the right to put others at risk in a society. I don't care what your personal beliefs are. Right. We draw the line at your personal beliefs infringing upon the basic human rights of others. How do you feel about that as a stance, Raimondo? Absolutely. I mean, you, you you can have your personal liberty up until the point where you're risking other people's lives, and that's what not vaccinating your kids does exactly. And I feel there are, there's a movie coming out of this. Picture a town with a giant wall around it, and no one inside is vaccinated. I that that could be pretty. That could be pretty sweet. There's a lot of potential there. And then what happens? Um, 
yeah, someone someone sneaks it in. Hell, I don't know. I, I haven't I haven't written it yet. No, but, but you're absolutely right. Every, everything you want to do up until a point is completely fine. But when you are risking either through passive passive um, measures like not getting vaccinated, vaccinated, that's when you're risking literally everyone around you that you're not allowed to do. But but what is it about? How, how do people get away with it? Um, I have to go by the speed limit. I'm not allowed to kill anybody. I can't do whatever I want. But somehow, when it comes to vaccinating, maybe because you're going to stick a needle in my arm, my, my body, my body's my temple. Hell, I don't know. But what is it about that where they can suddenly throw religion out and go, I don't agree with that and you can't force me? And we, and we somehow say you have a semi-valid argument how does that line get drawn? Yeah, so you're right. As I said earlier, uh, in most countries, vaccinations are not mandated. Right. Except in extreme emergencies, like the one you're having in New York at the moment. Mm-hmm. And and I think the reason for that is when we're assessing where the line is between your, protecting your personal liberty and putting others at risk – we believe that enough people are going to get vaccinated that we have high enough uh, levels for herd immunity right. to be effective. So there's no reason really to force you into getting your kids vaccinated. If herd immunity is going to protect the rest of us to a, to a very high extent, and we have sufficiently advanced medicines that if your kids do get sick, and you bring them to a hospital, we can probably take care of it and prevent any of those uh, nasty secondary illnesses kicking in and killing them. Uh, it's a trade-off between uh, the the public health risk, uh, the risk to your children, and allowing you to have a little bit of your personal liberty space and claim religious exemptions or whatever. But... But let's talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. I was going to say, but doesn't that only work if one person in a state can go without being vaccinated? Because, again, if, if I'm not vaccinated, but I drive to another part of the state to work and I come back and my kids go to school, I mean, there is exposure. It doesn't matter that if one of us catch it, then I can go to the hospital and they can take care of me, even though it's probably going to take days days and weeks and, and tens of thousands of dollars the way things are in the United States. Uh, that's still not a good enough argument to say that almost everybody's vaccinated because as long as someone is not, because like we were saying with measles, measles is, is an endemic. It's always there. It's just not currently you know, affecting a large percentage of the of the population that's not a good enough argument but i see that that is the argument that some people make what's your argument just, just that, that yeah that that is a flaw if enough people are vaccinated then i do not have to be vaccinated because they won't get it and if they won't get it they can't give it to me because i'm susceptible because of mobility and everything else that there's just a major flaw that doesn't work anymore people are all over the place for various reasons. And so, uh, again, if you live in the middle of nowhere, if this was the 1800s, that would probably work. But the way people travel now, that's just that's just not reality. And you're going to be exposed to something at some point in, in some time in your life. And it's, it's just going to fall through. And then suddenly you are in the hospital and you're and you're hoping to survive whatever disease that you get. And that's that's fine up to a point because that's your choice you're choosing not to get vaccinated and then you get sick and that's on you mm-hmm. um, I'm talking about a pub from a public policy perspective if right. enough of a society not just in a state but in a country sure. is vaccinated then we're we're saying that okay we've got enough for herd immunity to be effective mm. if a relatively small percentage of people who are extre- have extreme views on this don't get vaccinated we don't have to force them to do it because the rest of us are safe and we can probably handle it um, if, if the people who are unvaccinated do get sick. But I want to talk about herd immunity in more detail because anti-vaxxers like to say it doesn't work. Right. It's another one of the big anti-vaxxer claims. Herd immunity is a lie. Doesn't work. <laughs> right. There are no scientific studies proving that herd immunity works. Well, A, that's not true. Um, 
there are, but it's it's mostly done on mice, not on ah. humans large scale. And it gets back to what we talked about in an earlier episode about uh, double-blind studies on vaccines. Mm-hmm. To to run a massive test on whether or not herd immunity works or doesn't, you would have to not immunise people, not vaccinate people. Right. Uh, and then wait for 40 years and see what happens. Oh, well, nope. half of them died. Right, maybe we should try herd immunity then. Okay, it's, it's unethical exactly. to do that. But here's how herd immunity works. It's basically about maths. The theory behind it is based on maths, right. not large-scale human trials. The idea is that... If you have a contagious disease in uh, uh, in a group, mm-hmm. in a society, in a community, let's say that, you can disrupt the chain of infection if enough people in the herd have immunity. Basically, it's less likely to spread. It's more easily contained right. if a high enough percentage of people in the community are not susceptible to the disease. Now, the term herd immunity was first used in a 1923 paper that looked at the vaccination of mice. Right. Basically, they they had a whole bunch of mice... uh, Mices. (laughs) Fuck me. Whole bunch of mice separated in different cages Mm -hmm. and at different... uh, with different levels of vaccination. And then they would... Uh, let some of them mix with others, and they were able to track how the disease spread. They found that even vaccinated mice could be susceptible to the disease if they were surrounded by enough unvaccinated mice. okay. Yeah, because nothing's perfect. Exactly. Nothing's perfect. And this is a big thing that anti-vaxxers struggle to understand. Again, science... Medicine, blunt instrument right right now. Right. Nothing is 100% foolproof when it comes to medicine. You know, you, you can take ibuprofen or, or pen or – what's the other one? <laughs> ibuprofen, uh, uh, uh We don't have that uh, here. Um, um, whiskey? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, I've smoked weed and didn't get high. Yeah. Like nothing works 100% of the time and 100% of the people, right? We're right. all different. Exactly. Uh, um, yeah. So uh, the immunity of the herd, it, not just the individual, mm-hmm. is important. It's what they figured out from looking at this in the early part of the 20th century. Now, you need different rates for different diseases, as I think we said in the last episode. For very infectious diseases like measles, you need to have 95% of the population vaccinated to have herd immunity. With other diseases like diphtheria, terrible disease, but it's not as infectious as measles. So for diphtheria, you can have a lower... Um, right. immune, vaccination rate and still have herd immunity be effective. Mm. But, and it even takes into account the fact that vaccinations don't work 100% of the time on 100% of the people. That 95% figure for measles is taking into account the fact that some vaccinated people it won't work for. Right. Right. But still, we need to have 95% of the people vaccinated. Yeah. So, anyway, back to the 1800s and looking at smallpox, which was the basis of this claim. Okay. Smallpox vaccinations did start to decline after the 1840s in the UK, Mm -hmm. not really because of the arguments of anti-vaxxers, though. Apparently, it's what you mentioned before, the widespread use of vaccination in the early years of the 19th century had basically rendered the population immune to smallpox Generation or two passes, and people forget right. how bad it was. Yes. And so, and it wasn't um, it wasn't programmatic back then. You, you know, today when you have a baby um, here, anyway, I don't know what it's like in the US, but here you have a baby. They go, okay, you need to get your baby vaccinated at this date, this date, this date, right. this date. Here's a chart. Here's a little red book. You have your little red. I think it's a red book. Might be a blue. Communist. Book. I think it's a red book. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Little red book that has everything you need to know about vaccinating your kid, and you you have it you know you have a calendar, and then the government sends you letters. You get you get notifications in the mail. Yeah, I think we used to even get emails, text messages. Boom! By the way, don't forget, Fox has to get his 
six-month vaccination or his 18-month vaccinations of whatever the fuck it right. was. Um, you know, but they didn't have that in the early 19th century. So people just stopped doing it. And then, uh, you know, smallpox uh, came back. Came back. Bang, baby! Yeah. Yeah. Because it had disappeared from view. But keeping in mind that we didn't really understand the germ theory of disease until the late part of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, people didn't really have a good grasp right. on the risks here and what was going on. So just to wrap up this point, the first vaccine was a disaster. Um, I'm sorry, I have to give that one a five for bullshit on my bullshit meter. Yeah. If, if I can, uh, I found a, um, a very different interpretation of herd immunity, um, obviously, from an anti-vaccine website. It's called Mercola.com. And I just want to read something out real quick. Again, how they twist words and meanings and perceptions. Again, they're, they're being very careful. So, so I, I just love the section that says, while there is such a thing as herd immunity among populations in which a majority has had the infectious disease and acquired a long-lasting natural immunity, vaccines offer only temporary artificial immunity. So if you have a community and they either a lot of them got the disease or some of them got the disease and they survived and they had kids. That's a all natural grade A immunity. And that's true herd immunity. But if you have people who have the vaccines, that's temporary, but they leave out that it's fucking decades and they somehow call it artificial because it's not natural. So they say, if you're talking about vaccines, you can never really have herd immunity, even if 100% of the population are vaccinated, again, because it's temporary. But again, it's, it's decades, decades long. And they say, the measles vaccine does not work for the rest of your life. Also, about just under 10% of vaccinations do not work. Now, all the other websites like CDC say that's more like 2 to 5%, but they're going with the highest um, number they can find. So they say 10%. So if someone tells you, I can vaccinate you for measles, but there's only 90% chance it's going to take, you know, that might give you pause. And again, so they start mentioning outbreaks of measles in 18, uh, 1989 and 1990, saying again, if measles have been, if we've vaccinated and we supposedly wiped it out decades ago, how are there still outbreaks? So again, they're chipping away at it. They're using just very skewed facts to make their case. And again, but if you don't know any better and you just read their work and you don't read anything to oppose it, you're not going to know any better. Yeah. And the stuff about vaccinations not lasting an entire lifetime, I think that's relatively new knowledge too. Like uh, I mm-hmm. think there was an assumption in the early part of the 20th century, mid middle of the 20th century maybe even, that some of these vaccinations would last um, right. we assume. Life, yeah. for a lifetime. Yeah. Again, this isn't fucking 100% science. <laughs> this is blunt instrument. Yeah. And then over time they realize, oh, okay, these things don't work forever. I think um, – so reading about – I can't remember if it was whooping cough or something else. I think it's whooping cough that – elderly people that had been vaccinated as children were getting it right. at much higher rates than they should have been getting it. Uh, and they were like, oh, okay, well, maybe this does. Maybe we do need booster shots. Right. Maybe this doesn't look after you. But again, like saying that it doesn't work for a lifetime isn't, for me, an argument of anything. Even saying it's only 90% effective mm-hmm. is still an argument to get it. 90, <laughs> 90% or 0%. Right. Do you want to know? Do you want a ten percent chance of getting it or a hundred percent chance if you meet somebody affected? I'll take it's, the ten percent chance over a hundred percent chance. It's numbers, baby. You know? It's numbers. Yeah. So five for bullshit on that whole yeah. thing. All right, claim four. We got some time. Let's do claim number four. Vaccines are highly profitable for pharmaceutical companies and the healthcare industry. Strong financial incentives exist to continue this practice, not effectiveness. You cannot trust brochures on vaccines provided by pharmaceutical companies because they are corporations with a profit motive. Their objective is not to protect health, but to sell vaccines. I I just want to repeat something you said a couple of episodes ago. That very last statement, their objective is not to protect health, but to sell vaccines. It's hard to sell vaccines to dead people. Um, 
I don't want to show off how good I am at marketing, but if a lot of people start dying off, then obviously they're going to sell less vaccines. So again, to me that, and I know I'm nitpicking here, but that, that last sentence doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, well, well, let's let's drill into that in some detail. And look, on the surface, I think this one makes some sense to people that are you know, sceptical about corporations and their profit motives and their ethics, as I am one of those people, as yeah. you know. So I get this. And yes, big pharma companies make money from selling vaccines, mm-hmm. no doubt about it. But they also sell a lot of other products. Yeah. Now... You have to wonder, do anti-vaxxers use any pharmaceutical products? Ah. Do, do they use Panadol? That's the one I was trying to think of before. Mm. Panadol, ibuprofen, mm-hmm. paracetamol, right. aspirin, statins for lowering cholesterol. You know, do they take any yeah. medicines Viagra. at all? Some of them some of them may not, Viagra. <laughs> <laughs> You know, maybe maybe they do take none of those, yeah. but uh, I think a lot of anti-vaxxers probably do use Panadol if they get a headache. Right. Um, so they're like, well, we don't like this big pharma product, but these big pharma products that they're <laughs> the making time. money out of, yeah, they're fine. According to market research firm Technavio, mm-hmm. the global human vaccine market is predicted to reach... $47.5 US billion by the year 2022. Wow. So, yes, vaccines, big market, a yeah. lot of money. But can you guess what percentage of the overall pharma market vaccines are? <sighs> um, 5%. 2%. Oh, damn. So. Now, it's still big. Yeah. Yeah, but it's a very, very small percentage of what right. big pharma makes money on. Out. And yeah. here's the thing: yeah. they're much more complicated to develop because new strains of these diseases come out all the time. You know, the flu shot everyone knows about. They have to come up with new versions of the flu shot every year because there are different strains of the flu going around. Mm-hmm. And they're always going to take, the, you know, I think the top three or four and try and give you a shot for those um, that yeah. will, you know, prevent the likelihood of you getting those. But you might get one of the other ones that they haven't uh, developed a, a shot for or they're not, they don't think it's the likely or they don't even know about it mm-hmm. until you get it. And they're like, oh, fuck, <laughs> now we need to go figure out how to build one against this. Right, right? exactly. Um But when you look at other things that pharmaceutical companies sell, like Viagra, Mm -hmm. you only need to develop Viagra once and you can sell it forever. One and done. It wasn't, I think Viagra initially, it was heart medication. Yeah. And then they go, oh, and it also gives heart odds. (laughs) Fucking awesome. We're going to be rich. That's, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So the the thing about, vaccinations is yes they they make money out of it uh, uh, but the R&D is much much higher than many other things they could be they could be making and that cuts into the profit margins yeah so you got to take that into account yeah did you did you read about the history of um, some of the um, and I don't want to jump the gun but just from the 1960s to the 1980s pediatricians and doctors were often often losing money from vaccine administration because again it just wasn't making that much money and some of the uh, some of the companies got out of the industry altogether for, because of the slim profit margins so we're going to and you'll see and obviously that changes a little later on but the point is for a couple of decades between the 60s and 80s there was no money in it, it yes you could say they were doing it because it was a right thing to do or it was a tax write off or maybe it made them feel good or all the above i don't know but there was a couple of decades there where there was not much money into it that's going to change but for a while these people were you know they weren't making any money from it yeah we will get to that at some stage one one of the things people have said to me um on facebook is uh you know there's this special court Mm -hmm. um for vaccine related uh injuries kids that do get side effects from taking vaccines 
There's a special court in the United States that processes those. People say, well, why do they get their own courts? Why, that's not right. Right. And the the reason, as I understand it, is because there wasn't much money in it for the pharma companies. And, of course, there are going to be side effects. They're very, very rare, but they do happen. Mm -hmm. And they were being taken to court and potentially being, you know, run out of business. Right. Um, for the, the penalties that they were paying for these legal fees and then court penalties. So they said, well, fuck it, we're just not, we're not going to make vaccines anymore. This is during the Reagan administration years. Yeah. And the, the government had to go, well, well, hold on. No, we need vaccines. <laughs> so uh, I'll tell you what we'll do. We will create a legal process mm-hmm. where people can still make claims right. if they get affected and they will still get... Uh, paid out, but there will be caps, there will be limits put on right. it, and it'll come out of the public treasury, not Ooh. out of the pharmaceutical companies. Right. The, so basically the public is saying, look, society wants vaccinations. We accept, though, that in certain instances there will be side effects because, again, this isn't perfect, it's it's blunt instrument, um, and we will cover the costs of that. Right. Uh, when it happens. We we will pay out the penalties out of the public treasury and they're going to be capped because, you know, we we don't believe this is the result of um, malfaisance. Right. It's just uh, the, the, the risks of trying to make uh, a vaccination that will work for hundreds of millions of people. Right. Um, it's just not right. going to work all of the time yeah. for a whole variety of reasons. Uh, anyway, uh, back to profit. So, you know who else makes money out of selling things, Ray? Tell me who. Fucking everybody, Ray. <laughs> Fucking everybody makes money out of selling things. Really? Even the even anti vaxxers make money out of selling things. Even if you're a wage slave, right. you make money out of selling your labour right. to your employer. Mm. So that as an argument, they make money out of it so you can't trust them. Well, if we're going to use that yeah. as the standard, then yeah. I can't trust you whores. telling me that right. because you're making money right. out of telling me. Yeah. Um, herbal medicine manufacturers make profits out of selling their products, so I can't believe anything they say either, I guess. Homeopathic medicines. Right. If Bullshit. you can call homeopathic things medicines. Right. They make money out of selling that too, so, yeah. you know, I guess you can't. Buy anything they they sell either, if yeah. that's your standard for what you can and can't trust. Right. It's not enough to say you cannot trust brochures on vaccines provided by pharmaceutical companies because they are corporations with a profit motive, because that's the entire world, <laughs> except maybe if you live in a communist country, I guess. <laughs> right. But here's another problem with this argument. When you break down the maths, it doesn't work out very well, as far as I can tell. Yeah. How much do pharma companies sell a dose of the MMR vaccine for in the United States, Ray? Um, let's see here. Well, the current CDC pediatric contract price for MMR is $19.91. However, the private sector pediatric price for MMR is $59.91. So thank you, capitalism. <laughs> Uh, okay, I uh, have different, I have numbers? different, okay. Pro- different numbers, but they're roughly the same. I got twenty-one okay. uh, for doctors and seventy-five for the private okay. sector. CDC cost of twenty-one, private sector seventy-five. Either way, it's somewhere between twenty and seventy bucks. Yeah. Right? yeah. Now, if you don't have the vaccine and you catch, let's say, measles. Mm-hmm. Chances are that you end up in hospital for somewhere between two to ten days. Yes. In America, <laughs> if you end up in hospital for that amount of time, what's your pharmaceutical bill going to be? A shit ton? No, no, what is it? Well, according to the CDC, in the US, your hospital bill would be somewhere between $4,000 and $46,000. So I was right. Depending on the length of your stay. Yeah. How much of that is pharmaceuticals? Well, from some studies I looked at, probably around 30 to 40%. Mm. 
of the cost of your hospital stay is drugs. Right. Does that does that make sense to you as an American? I've really got no idea. I'm just going off of studies. Yeah, that's pretty good because and because the other part is that hospitals are so expensive. When women have children, they literally try to get them out there out of the hospital the next day or within 48 hours just because it's just so it's just so freaking expensive. I don't know what it's like in other countries, but they really do try to get you up on your feet walking. They can check you out and then and then you're out of the hospital. So I'm not surprised that a couple of days could be as much as, you know, forty thousand dollars. Uh do you know what it would cost in Australia if you were in hospital for ten days? <sighs> okay, I feel like this is a trick question. Do y'all have to pay a percentage or a flat fee for hospital stay? If you, it depends on the kind of hospital okay. you go to. If it's a public hospital, you would probably end up paying nothing. Right. Uh, if you went to a private hospital, which you can do, mm-hmm. uh, you would typically also have private health insurance that would cover that. Ah, right. And it would end up costing you nothing. I mean, a couple of times I've been to a private hospital for things – I had some eye surgery 20 years ago. I think mm-hmm. it, I end up having to spend a couple of hundred bucks after being in right. hospital for a, a couple of days out of a large bill. My private health insurance took care of it. Damn. But my private health insurance, then I was paying a couple of hundred bucks a month for private health insurance, I think, for the family mm-hmm. back then. Right. Um, when Chrissy had Fox and she went to hospital, had the baby, was in hospital for three or four days afterwards, I think we had to pay her and the cost of her anaesthetist's mm-hmm. time, which was a couple of hundred bucks. Uh, that wasn't covered. Everything else was covered. Jeez. It cost us nothing. So a, a country can have private and public health care working together and somehow <laughs> magically you make it work. Yeah, I know. It's really, really it's just, strange. Yeah. Uh, I think it is some dark, dark magic that the rest of the world has figured out and just hidden from Americans. Yeah, because that doesn't Anyway, yeah. Gets, yeah. Get, getting back to the numbers. So according to the studies I saw, about 30 to 40% of your cost, and it would be the same here in Australia too. It's just that we don't see it because it's covered by the government and right. comes out of our taxes. Right. Um, so if you catch measles in the US and here too, right, the pharma industry is going to make somewhere between a thousand and twenty thousand dollars out of you, depending on how bad it is, out of right. the cost of the drugs that you get during your hospital stay. Ooh. But if you get a vaccination, they only get somewhere between twenty and fifty dollars from you. Mm. Maybe double that if you get two doses. Right. Okay. So let's round it up and say a hundred bucks. If you if if they vaccinate you, they get a hundred bucks. Um, if you go to hospital, they get somewhere between a grand and 20 grand. Let's pick the middle number there, say 10 grand on average. Right. So if we didn't have any vaccinations, how many people would get measles? Now, if you look at the decade before 1963, when a vaccine became available, nearly all children in the United States got measles by the time they were 15 years of age. Mm -hmm. It's estimated that three to four million people in the United States were infected every year. Um, about 48,000 people of those were hospitalized. Gotcha. Now, in the United States in 1963, the population was 189 million people. Today, it's about 330 million people. So it's about 60% bigger today than it was in 1963. Mm-hmm. So... If we apply that math, let's say that if there were no measles vaccine today, about five and a half million Americans would catch it each year and about 77,000 would end up in hospital. Mm -hmm. Each visit would cost about $10,000 on average in pharmaceuticals. That's roughly $800 million a year in measles-related pharmaceutical revenue that Big Pharma would make. That's just one disease. That's just one disease (laughs) in one year. Right, right. Now, what do they get out of vaccinations? Did you do any – you got any maths on the vaccination side of the argument for me, Ray? Uh, No, just the prices according to CDC. That's what I had for that. So what do they get? Right, so you – you didn't do any maths. You didn't really do much work on this. 
don't do maps. I do once you're finished talking. I do have the anti-vaxer version version of a lot of what you're saying, but I'm I'm saving that to the end. So you give me reality, and I will give you unreality. Well. In the 2012 to 2013 school year in the United States, there were about 4.2 million kindergartners. Mm -hmm. So let's assume that's about how many kids are roughly born every year, about 4 million. Okay. Let's assume that each kid gets two doses of the MMR over two years. Right. So roughly 4 million or let's say 4.2 million times $50 a dose on average, times two doses, that's roughly $420 million per generation mm-hmm. farmers making out of vaccines, uh, the MMR vaccine, spread over two years. So they're getting $400 million from vaccinating a generation of kids a year. Right. Versus eight hundred million a year, they'd be getting from treating people in hospitals if they got measles. I'm not even taking into right. account the other M and the other R and MMR, the mumps and rubella. Right, just measles alone. Right. So yeah, what we're saying is, on the surface, looking at the maths, they would make twice as much money if there was no vaccine for measles than they make out of providing the vaccine and. They wouldn't have to do all of the R&D on coming up with the vaccine that they make. Yeah, which costs a shit ton. So, yeah. so on the, it doesn't make sense. This whole profit yeah. motive doesn't make sense. Big Pharma would make more money by not selling vaccines mm-hmm. than they make by selling vaccines. Now, think about this for a second. Who yeah. is the number one proponent of... Stopping vaccinations. The anti-vaxxers? I don't know. Do you mean a specific the party or? Yeah. No, the anti-vaxxers. Yeah. Yes, you guessed right. All right. Big Pharma yeah. would make money by not selling vaccines and the anti-vaxxers oh. are trying to convince us not to use vaccines. <laughs> Maybe right. the anti-vaxxers are secretly <laughs> working for Big Pharma To convince the world not to get vaccinated so Big Pharma can make more money. That's deep. That makes perfect sense to me, according to what is the usual logical standard of (laughs) anti-vaxxers. Yeah, they're actually helping Big Pharma by this. Exactly. Which probably means they're getting paid by Big Pharma. Yeah. Would it be funny if Big Pharma is actually behind the whole anti-vaxxer campaign? I would not be surprised. Um, all right. You want to talk about you, – you had something you wanted to well, throw in there about something? Yeah, so just take all that that you just said and all the logic and all the uh, examination. There's a um, – it's either a website or a journal. It's called Wellbeing Journal. And there's a person, uh, Dr. Christine M. Severin, I believe is how you say her name. So this was her take on everything we just dis- we just discussed. And she writes this. Vaccines generate billions of dollars in revenue for drug companies as cost paid by the federal government, which purchases half of the vaccines for the nation's children. And these costs have been have risen 15-fold since 1986. Okay. Annual a- annual immunization costs have gone from $100 per child in 1986 to $2,192 per child in 2015, according to the CDC. So let's say that that's true for a second. And we all know that the cost of everything goes up every year. That's just the nature of how economics seem to work on this planet. That's not an argument that the vaccines don't work. That's just an argument that's saying that the drug companies are making a lot of money. So again, they're kind of glossing that over because they're making a lot of money because they're charging you more. They're somehow evil. And if they're somehow evil, then what they're doing, you can't trust. So she goes on, the Advisory Committee of Immunization Practices, a group of individuals handpicked by members of the CDC, recommends which vaccines are administered to American children. Now, working mainly in secret, 
her words, these members frequently have financial leaks, links to vaccine manufacturers. Depending on federal CDC funding, administrators of state vaccination programs follow CDC directives by influencing state regulators to mandate new vaccines. So what she's saying is that they're all connected. It's all one big, big old, you know, backroom politics. Everybody's handing everybody money. There's payoffs. And that could be true for all I know. But the point is, that's not an argument that vaccines don't work. And then she says, and, and she says it's like it's an accusation. The CDC offers financial bounties to state departments of health for each fully vaccinated child that they can get. In the recent year, the Ohio Department of Health received $1 million in such CDC bonus payments. But again, it's their job to get people vaccinated. If the CDC decides to use money to motivate them to work even harder, you could argue that either way. So again, just like we were saying, so she puts this very negative, dark slant on it. It's all about money. I'm sure they are making money. But like I was saying earlier, between the 60s and the 80s, they weren't making a lot of money. In fact, in 1967, there were 26 vaccine manufacturers by 1980 that had dropped down to 17 because they weren't making a lot of money. But what happens is... um, then vaccines that actually do turn a profit in high-income countries, um, constituting 82% of global vaccines, uh, vaccine sales in terms of value, hit the market. So the 1980s come, they get more medicines, they're dealing with different diseases, like the hyp- um, uh, hepatitis B vaccine, the vaccine for meningitis. Now, there are some vaccines out there that do generate a lot of money, but the basic ones that your kids get do not. And these companies handle both. And like you were saying earlier, the R&D on these are staggering costs. They have to house it. They have to make it. And they've got the FDA watching their back to make sure that they do it correctly all the time. So there is money being made. But again, that that's not an argument to say that the vaccines don't work. And on some of the vaccines they make, they do not make money. But that gets covered up when it's being spun by the anti-vaxxers. Yeah, and look, I, I, I agree with you. I'm no, I have no doubt that there is corruption at some level between yeah, corporations human and the government. Absolutely, there is in every field and right. every industry, Absolutely. and uh, we should pay attention to that and get rid of it where we can find it. But that's not the, not an argument about um, profitability. Right. The profitability Absolutely. argument is doesn't make any sense when you think about it for half a second. Um, and, and here's the other part of why it doesn't mm-hmm. make any sense. And you, you, suggest, you, you sort of indicated this before. The entire reason governments push vaccines hard is because of a cost-benefit analysis. It costs the economy yes. far more yes. money if people get sick. Mm-hmm. People get sick, we have to cover their healthcare costs because they aren't productive um, then the economy suffers. We, they aren't paying taxes. They aren't pushing the economy forwards. They aren't buying iPhones. Um, and so there are all of these effects, negative economic effects of people getting sick. So the reason governments push vaccines is because they want people to be healthy. They want people to be working. They want people to be generating taxes and driving the economy forwards. Right. And that's what corporations want too. Governments want that. Corporations want that too. It's the same reason or the same rationale anyway. Governments have cracked down on cigarettes. In this country in particular, they've said, well, look, the public health cost of lung cancer mm-hmm. is extremely high. So we need to crack down on people smoking, and they've done that by putting taxes, basically, and, and advertising the negative health consequences, making it cost-ineffective for people to smoke as yes. much as possible. And unfortunately, they wrap cigars into that, even though Bastards. all of the science says that cigars are not bad for you. Certainly nowhere near as bad for right. you as cigarettes and, and the health risks of cigars are extremely minimal based on all of the science, but they just, ah, fuck that, tobacco's tobacco. Bullshit, but anyway. It's about the yeah. cost to society. Yeah. And I'll, get, I'll give you some examples of this. It's, in the United States, it's estimated mm-hmm. that the introduction of the meningococcal vaccine saved $551 million in direct costs and $920 million in indirect costs. Damn. 
That's that's mm-hmm. in a that's in a single year. Saved a billion dollars, one and a one and a half right. billion dollars in from a the year. economy. A, a yeah. year. Another example is the polio vaccination. In the first six years after the introduction of the polio vaccine, it was calculated that more than 150,000 cases of paralytic polio and 12,500 deaths were prevented worldwide, which Mm. is a cost-saving to the global economy of more than $30 billion annually in 1999 dollars. Right. So, yes, it's about money, but not really about big pharma profits. It's about reducing the direct and indirect healthcare costs uh, across the community. It's all relative. Uh, also, S- spend a little now, spend a little now, and save a lot later. That's what it comes down to. Sorry, go ahead. Ex- no, exactly. I'm just about to wrap up this point. Mm-hmm. So, in a world with no vaccines of any kind, lots of people would die. And as you said mm-hmm. earlier on, you know how much money pharma companies can make out of you when you're dead? Nothing. <laughs> they want you to live to a ripe old age, right. get old, get sick, Viagra. Buy, lots right. of, buy, lots of, <laughs> buy lots of drugs. <laughs> That's what pharmaceutical right. companies want. They want to keep you alive yeah. and on the drip for your entire life, buying a ton of ibuprofen and Viagra and Prozac. So, again, this whole argument that it's about profit makes zero sense if you stop and think about it for a few minutes, which anti-vaxxers, of course, Mm -hmm. don't do. So this one, I'm sorry to say, gets another big five out of five on my bullshit meter. Right. Well, that's the end of this episode. Uh, Not scoring very well here, the anti-vax arguments in terms of logic. Um, We'll be back next time with the next point, next anti-vaxxer claim. All vaccines contain a number of toxic poisons and chemicals that are linked to serious neurological damage, including aluminium, thimerosal, antibiotics, monosodium glutamate and formaldehyde. We'll get to that on the Mm. next episode. Thanks for listening.